title of today's message is Dealing with Uncertainty or Surviving 2024. This year, we have some new challenges that we'll be facing. Uh, probably the biggest one will be the election that's coming up. And um, anybody here already have election fatigue? I know I do. I'm, I, I am just so tired. It just seems as soon as one person's elected, they start the next election cycle. And it gets exhausting. I used to be a huge news watcher. I used to be a real political junkie. I would tape all the talking head shows, make sure I could see them when I was at work. And I'd be constantly checking my computer, my phone, uh, looking at all the latest news, what's going on in Washington, and even interested in world news, looking at BBC and all that. And I spent my entire day just absorbing news, absorbing opinion shows, listening to commentators on the radio and everything else. And the one thing I noticed, though, is that the more I absorbed of this kind of stuff, the more frustrated I would get, the more fearful I would get, the more worried I would get, and the more angry I became. And as a result, I found that I wasn't as spiritually minded as I should be. And I think all of us can get that way. What we focus on has a tendency to, to work its way into our hearts. It could be something that's going on at work. You could have a work difficulty, maybe a, a struggle with a boss or a coworker. Maybe it's a marriage or relationship issue. Maybe it's a problem with the kids. Maybe you have a neighbor you don't get along with. There's, but there are things in life that just allow fear, doubt, and unbelief to creep its way into our heart, to almost become our default way of thinking and experiencing life. And that's when the enemy has you. That's when he has your focus on the wrong thing. Let me illustrate this a little bit. How many people here have ever had a chance to look through binoculars? Anybody here have a chance to look through binoculars? I love binoculars. I love them for hunting in particular or going out wildlife watching and, and hiking in the woods and all that thing and all those kind of things. But one of the things I've noticed um, is that when you are looking through binoculars, you're really focused on one thing, but you have no idea of what's going on around you. And I remember a few years ago, I was sitting during hunting season, and I'm, look, I'm watching through my binoculars, and I see a great big doe about 300 yards away. And for my rifle, that's a, a pretty easy shot. I got a good scope and a good rifle. And I'm looking at it, and I'm just waiting for it to get in the right spot. I'm ready to pick up my rifle and scope it in and everything. And as I'm staring at it, I put my binoculars down, I raise my scope, and as I raise my scope, I see a giant, probably 14-point buck walking into the woods about 100 yards away. I couldn't see it because I was so laser-focused on this doe, and these binoculars were blocking my peripheral vision that I, couldn't, that I totally missed probably what could have been a, the biggest deer I'd ever shot. And that's where tunnel vision can be a real deterrent, where we spend way too much time focusing on the wrong things and things that have no eternal significance or value. A wise man once said that our focus determines our reality. And I found in my own life, if my focus is too narrow and concentrating on the things of this world, then my emotions, my spirituality, and my faith is directly affected by all of that, that bad news. 
In the scripture we're going to read today, we're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 3, if you want to turn there in your Bible. In that scripture, we're going to read about another person who is really focused on the news of his day. Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah in the years immediately before Babylon conquered Jerusalem. Habakkuk was kind of like you and me. He was a man that was really focused on what was going on around him. In fact, he looked throughout the land and saw nothing but evil occurring. And the evil that he saw involved a lot of idol worship, involving some very grotesque sexuality. He saw human and infant sacrifice, the worship of demon, and no justice to be found anywhere. Then God speaks to him and gives him a prophetic word that Babylon was going to come and devastate his home. Habakkuk now has some questions to, for God. In the, in the Bible book that bears his name, God answers his prophet. And we're going to explore both of the questions that Habakkuk asked this morning, but I want to start with Habakkuk's response to God's answer to his questions. In book three, or chapter three of his book, he prays these words to God. Habakkuk 3, starting in verse 2. Habakkuk says, Lord, I have heard of your fame, and I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, and in our time make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. <coughs> Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Father, for your word. I thank you, Father, that we can look back thousands of years to a, a minor prophet living in Jerusalem, around Jerusalem of that time, and see how it matters for our life today. Your word is true. Your word is relevant. Help us to see what you, would, what you said to your prophet and what it means for our life today. We ask this in your name. Amen. So today we're living in a time that very, clo very closely resembles the time of Habakkuk. We have many of the same problems. We have problems of sin, idolatry, rampant and deviant sexuality, and all the things that were leading his nation and his people very close to judgment. We as a church in 2024 may very well have ringside seats to the countdown to the tribulation. If you don't know what the tribulation is, it's the events described in the book of Revelation. And it's a pretty big deal. It's going to change life as we know it forever. And as people like Habakkuk, standing potentially at the edge of God's judgment, we may have some questions about it. Habakkuk had two questions of God. His first question, how God... Can you allow this kind of evil to exist without stopping it? How can you, God, just not judge us for all of the wickedness we see on this planet? And you read about his question in chapter 1 of his book. In chapter 1, verse 2, Habakkuk asked God in prayer. He said, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, Violence! but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? 
Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and, and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Now if you're going to summarize Habakkuk's question, it's simply, God, there's rampant evil all around me, why don't you stop it? Has anybody ever heard or experienced something that had them ask that question of God? Why are you allowing this? Maybe it's something personal. Maybe it's something you saw at work. Maybe it's just something you've experienced. But you have asked that question of God. I can recount dozens and dozens of examples over 30 years of being a paramedic and now as an RN. That sometimes that question is always in my, my heart when I see the results of evil. And even though in my mind I can answer it philosophically, I can answer it theologically, or, or even just logically, my mind knows the answer, but my soul still cries out, why? Why are you allowing evil to flourish? Right now in our world, we're seeing rampant evil. We're seeing corruption at the highest levels of human government. We're seeing the slaughter of innocence in war and through abortion. There was a, a statistic that really shocked me that I heard lately that there are over 40 million, million slaves in the world. 40 million slaves. There's never been this many people in slavery in the entirety of human history. And over half of them are sexual slaves. Half of them. Many of them children. As we saw this week with the Epstein stuff coming out. The enemy of our souls just seems to be winning. In his effort to deface the image of God in us and the rest of humanity. Any rational person who knows the Bible must be thinking at this point, God, haven't the scales of justice tipped far enough down where you will act, where you will, will send judgment or something at this point? You have to do something. After all, God, you are a holy, holy God. How can you tolerate this any longer? And that's what Habakkuk is saying. How can you, holy God, tolerate this evil and perversion in the world? That's his first question. But what was God's response? In Habakkuk 1.6, he said, I'm raising up the Babylonians. The Bible then describes who the Babylonians are. A very violent and a very wicked people. In that time in history, the Babylonians are Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, ISIS, and Hamas all rolled up into one. They are the most wicked people in all of history at that point. And you can almost feel the prophet's visceral reaction to God's answer. Habakkuk spiritually recoils at the thought of allowing people more wicked than the Israelites to be his instrument of just judgment and justice. And Habakkuk's, Habakkuk's response shows it. 
in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Let's break this down just a little bit. What Habakkuk is saying here is that, God, when I brought my initial complaint to you, I was thinking maybe a storm, maybe a little famine, maybe a voice from heaven with some thunder behind it to get people's attention. I'd even be okay if you just struck down one of those more wicked villages with a little bit of fire and brimstone. But God, you're calling the Babylonians to judge us? I don't want to question you, God, but this is like using a cruise missile to swat a fly. It seems to be overkill to me. I know we have our issues, God. I know we, we deserve punishment and judgment. But these guys you're sending against us make us look like the church choir. They are so much more evil than we could ever think of being at this point. You are a holy God. How can you allow such evil to judge us? That's Habakkuk's first argument. Ironically, this very argument was used by many in the days after September 11, 2001, to deny that this was God's wake-up call and warning to America. Because after all, God couldn't use a terrorist to judge a God-fearing nation like America. But unfortunately, those saying that didn't read this book of the Bible. There's something about God we need to remember. He's God. We are not. That's kind of a bitter pill for us to swallow sometimes, but he is God. He's under no obligation to us to explain himself. It is not written in some universal law that God needs our permission or approval to do anything. Most of you who are parents here, this should ring true to you. Or maybe if, you don't, if you're not parent, you remember your parents. At some time you were having an argument with your parents, and sooner or later it came down to, because I said so. You are, the, I, you are not the parent, I am. Period. End of discussion. And as God's children, sometimes we have to recognize that as well. We're blessed, though. God has given us an entire book showing us his ways and his reasons for doing things. That's what the Bible does for us. It shows us the nature and character of our Father. But at the end of the day, we have to recognize he's God. He's Father. And if God was small enough for our minds, he wouldn't be big enough to be God. There's a couple of other examples of God using evil to judge. The first one, for us in the church, when a believer refuses to come under the authority of the church, what does Jesus say to do? Hand him over to Satan. 
disfellowship them from the church. Let them experience life apart from God's protection for a while. And hopefully that will bring them to their senses. The second example, and probably the most somber, for those who will spend their eternity in hell, who do you think will be tormenting them? The demons. People much more, beings I should say, much more wicked than we are. And that brings us to one additional point here. God allows a devil in this world. And the devil's very good at what he does when it comes to making people made in the image of God to try to look more like him than the Father. And that's the evidence we are seeing all around us in our day. And that leads us to one of the hardest things about living in this world, and that is waiting on God. Particularly now, I think more than any other time in history, we live in a world of instant gratification. If I have a question, pull out my phone, look at Google. If I live in a, a good-sized city and I want something, Amazon will have it at your door in an hour. If I still live in Kenosha, they have drones flying around, I guess, now. Or they'll land in your backyard and drop off your product because we have an Amazon center there in Kenosha. We pretty much have on-demand everything. We just don't like waiting. I remember when I took my national registry test for EMT basic, it took six to eight weeks to find out if you passed. If you got the big envelope, you passed because it had your certificates and your patches and, and all that kind of stuff. And if you got the little letter, it basically said, loser, you failed. Retake the test. And now you have to wait another six to eight weeks. Same thing for nursing boards. It would take up to two to three months to get back to you. I would have had a nervous breakdown if I lived during the time when we, that's the way you took your nursing boards. And learning to wait is hard, particularly for those born after the internet was born. But this is the problem with this, is that learning to wait is one of the most major spiritual disciplines there are, there is, because it's the precursor to developing patience. And patience takes both time and effort to build within ourselves. And really, patience is a mark of maturity in the believer. Let me give you an example. How many, how many people have ever met a patient toddler? Anyone around two years old? They're just incredibly patient, aren't they? As a matter of fact, I think wait is the most vulgar swear word they've ever heard. This is why parents struggle with dealing with them and often lose patience and start yelling. But now let's go to the other end of the spectrum, grandparents. When the toddler is having a temper tantrum, one of the best things about being a grandparent is you can hand the toddler back to, back to the parent, right? But you'll also notice, though, that for the most part, there are some exceptions, grandparents are usually much more patient with the child than even the child's parents. You ever wonder why? Time. They've learned to develop patience. It took years, decades even. But generally speaking, and again, there are some exceptions, the older you get, the more patient you generally have become. And learning patience is key to success in life. Learning to wait and trust in God's timing will bring that patience. 
You say, what does this have to do with Habakkuk? Because it's the key to learning perseverance. It's a key to learning to trust in God. It's a key to developing a little bit of spiritual toughness. And it's critical to survive what is coming. And I can't say that strong enough. Everything in this world is already pointing at us, trying to get us to renounce our faith. But the Bible says if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And that's a heart we need to develop, one that patiently waits on God. And it's seen in Habakkuk's actions after he asked God about evil judging Israel. After pouring out his heart, and God, by the way, never will turn you away if you're asking an honest question of him. If you ask these questions like Habakkuk did, he will respond. He will show you and teach you his ways. And he does this with God. Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what God will say to me and what his answer and what answer I am to give to this complaint. The Bible doesn't say when God answered him. It could have been weeks, minutes, hours, days, years. We don't know. I think God used it to develop maybe a little bit more patience and perseverance in his prophet and teach him to wait and trust in his father. It's something else that we need to learn and develop in our lives to be still and know that he is God when we have questions, when we're going through the hard times. He would encourage us, be still and know that I am God. And if we learn to do that, the Holy Spirit will have the freedom to develop patience and perseverance with us. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5, 3 through 5, he said, not only so, we only rejoice, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. And I think I found the reason that people, or so many people, fall away from church and from the faith is because they've never allowed this process to work out in their life. They've never developed the toughness, the spiritual toughness. They've never developed the perseverance. As I do frequently, I point you to the military. Nobody wants to go through basic training twice. It's a miserable experience for most people. Why does the, the military make it that way? Why, why don't they just have puppy dogs and rainbows in basic training? Because they know the biblical principle, even if they don't even understand it's a biblical principle. They know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance develops character that you will need to stand during the hard times. And character produces hope, which in the military is the assurance of the training you've received. 
They're unconsciously following the biblical principle here. And it holds true in this world, and it holds true in the spiritual formation of the believer. The final thing that it will do is help us respond to everything in life with a greater reverence for God and a greater trust in God. Back to our original verse. Habakkuk has asked his questions. Habakkuk has heard God's responses. Undoubtedly, they've been difficult to hear, but he responds with praise. When he said, Lord, I have heard of your fame, and I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, but in our time, and in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And that's what I want us to focus on, both this morning and for the entire year of 2024. If you are a biblical spiritually sensitive and spirit spirit filled Christian then you're feeling that America and the world is on the brink of something bad and we desperately want God to intervene sooner or later something's going to happen and it'll probably be some form of a judgment but do you know what comes after judgment revival Revival, return of the people back to God. I want revival. I want to see the churches filled up again. And if I have to suffer a little to get it, then so be it. Because the end will be so much better than what we have right now in our world. The problem is for most of America and many in the American church, many of them want what we have now with less suffering, not understanding that it's because of what we have now that we are suffering and producing all of this evil. Too often, we're like obese people at the all-you-can-eat buffet complaining about being fat. And yes, I'm picking on myself. Taking away the all-you-can-eat buffet will cause discomfort if food is your thing. Dieting isn't comfortable, but if you allow that discipline of dieting to have its way with you, it produces a much better life. That's the kind of mindset that we need to have regarding any minor afflictions we'll go through in 2024. Respond with reverence and awe of what God is doing and what he's about to do.